I'm giving you 15 minutes. You will begin with your understanding of the Bible and you will end with your understanding of the return of Jesus. And in between, you will talk about all the major doctrines of the Christian faith in a way that will make sense for your life and the lives of others. Can you do it? Let me help you join us for this series that we're doing on Sunday night called Doctrines for Living. Well, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about the Trinity, uh, the foundation for knowing God. This is the source. This is the fountain. This is where we begin uh, our understanding of God and our worship of God and our obedience to God. God is Trinity. To say that is to say that he is one in essence and he is three in expression. It is to say that he is one God in three persons. So let's go back to where we ended last week and just review briefly before we dive into Deuteronomy chapter 6. Let's look again at Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the first five books of the Bible. It is a summary statement of everything that God has taught his people up to this point as God has given his word to Moses, and it forms the foundation for how the people of God are to honor God by obeying the word of God And it makes clear that God has chosen this people, and it makes clear why God has chosen this people. Chapter 7, verse 8, of chapter 7, verse 6, we read, For you, speaking about the people of God, the people known as Israel, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You're set apart for him. You belong to him. You don't belong to yourselves. You don't belong to the world. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now, the word chosen here is the word for election or the word for predestination. The truth is that everybody who understands anything about the Bible has a doctrine of election or a doctrine of predestination. You can't read the Bible and study the Bible and not see that that doctrine is very clearly taught in Scripture. So everybody has a doctrine. The difference is whether or not your doctrine is rooted in the grace of God or whether your doctrine is rooted in the glory of humans. In other words, do you believe that God elects humans whom he knows will choose him? Or do you believe God elects humans solely on the basis of his grace? One is very God-centered, the other is very human-centered. Everybody has, has a doctrine of election, whether it's, uh, and it's either rooted in the understanding that the focus should be on us and our freedom and will to choose, And if so, we believe that God knows who will choose him from before the foundations of the world, and those are his chosen people. But listen to what God says to Israel. It's what God says consistently. This does not change throughout Scripture. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. 
For you were the fewest of all people, but it is because the Lord loves you. Why does God choose you? Because he loves you. And is keeping the oath that he swore to our fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. God chooses his people for himself and enters into a covenant with them, brings them into a covenant relationship where his people have as the heartbeat of their lives to obey God and to honor God by keeping his commands. That's what this text says. But it also says in verse 10, and God repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandments and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Now, that's the context in which uh, God, through Moses, is going to communicate to his people uh, who they are to be in relationship to him and how they are to live. So God speaks to Moses. Moses brings the word of God to the people because God has raised up Moses to do that. Now, let's go back to chapter 6, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1. This is... um, This is the key text in the Old Testament for the Old Covenant people of God and how the Old Covenant people of God are to relate to God, being who God has called them to be, doing what God has called them to do. So God is speaking to Moses. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules. So he uses three words here, commandment, generally, This is the truth of God, the word of God, and it's formed in individual statutes and rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land which you are going over to possess it. You know, one of the things I'm learning and teaching through the book of James, and I told somebody the other day, I'm having a ball studying James. I hope it is helping you some, but I'm telling you, it's blessing my socks off. Just getting to drill down in this book every week and listen to what God is saying in James, and, and it's, it's just a wonderful thing. But James is saturated with the Old Testament. He doesn't quote it a lot, but it's saturated. For example, for example, what is said here is, the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them. So what does James say? Don't just hear the word. Where did he get that from? Think he's read Deuteronomy? (laughs) Absolutely. He's read Deuteronomy. He's studied Deuteronomy. He's listened to Deuteronomy. He knows that we can't just listen to the word. We must do the word. So um, Moses said that he is to teach and they are to receive and to do in the land which you're going over to possess it, that you may, why do we learn the word of God and live the word of God? Because we fear God. That doesn't mean we're afraid of God. It means 
We hold God in such holy and high reverence that we want to please him, and pleasing him is obeying him, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's sons, by keeping all his statutes and his command, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel. The word hear, here, it'll be repeated throughout this section. The word hear means to listen and do. God doesn't say, clean out your ears, hear what I'm saying, and if you hear it and get it, write it down, take notes, that's good enough. No. Hearing always leads to doing. We've not heard it until we do it. Hear, therefore, Israel, be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, this is the general teaching of God to his people through Moses. Hear the word of God, do the word of God, teach the word of God, live in obedience to the word of God, and he says here very clearly that you are to do this so that your sons may receive it and your sons' sons. This is multiple generations receiving, believing, hearing, heeding, knowing, obeying the word of God. Now he shifts from the general population of the people of God in verse 4 because the general population of the people of God is made up of families. So now he moves from Israel to the families of Israel that constitute the people of God. Hear, O Israel, verse 4, this is called the Shema, based on the first word. Every Orthodox Jew knows this verse from memory. It's at the heart. This is the heart of being Orthodox Jew, right here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Now I want to stop right there just for a moment. Hear, O Israel. Whoops, what happened? Okay. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God is one. To, to hear is to listen and to obey. And we listen and obey Yahweh, who is God. Now, this is very deliberate. The Lord, the Lord who enters into a personal relationship with his people. Every person belong, who belongs to God enjoys a personal relationship with God. He is our Lord. And He communes with us by His Spirit and through His Word, and we commune with Him. But what we can never forget is 
this one who is Lord, with whom we enjoy a personal relationship, is also God. He's the creator of all that is. He's the sovereign over all that is. He's the majestic and holy one. He's the righteous and just one. He is God. And it is this God that comes to us in a personal relationship so that we can know him as the Lord. And then look at the pronoun in the middle. Hear, O Israel, the Lord. What's the pronoun? Now, see, in in our context, unfortunately, we want the pronoun, I think, many times to be my. There is no my God that does not connect me with other people who know God and brings us together into a community of believers known as the church. So we don't speak of the Lord my God. We have to speak way beyond that, the Lord who is our God. We belong to this God who is Lord, and we belong to brothers and sisters who share the same kind of relationship and the same kind of responsibility with this God, this great and majestic, this loving and compassionate, this caring and communicating God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, the Lord is one. Now, in the Hebrew language, the word that's used for one here doesn't mean one. It means unity. The Lord our God is a unity. Now, what have you got to have in order to have a unity? Well, very simply, you've got to have more than one, right? <laughs> This is profound. This is in the early parts of the Word of God forming the foundation for everything else. And in this Shema, in this foundational text for the people of God under the Old Covenant, we are told, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is a unity. Now, this is fleshed out throughout the Bible, so we learn that This unity is a unity of one God in three persons. But here early in Deuteronomy, we are told that the Lord our God is a unity, which means Jesus was present long before he is born of the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit is present long before he shows up at Pentecost. That our God is one God in the Unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from eternity past into eternity future. This is of massive importance because it communicates to us the essence and the expression of our God. He is the God who creates all things and rules all all things. He has created in the earth a people for himself whom he redeems through his Son and brings to him through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, every Orthodox Jew then and now knows this verse, and it's at the foundation of their faith. And I've told you this before. Every Orthodox Jewish home, in their doorframe, on each side of their doorframe at eye level, they have a little box 
And that little box is on the door frame. It's at eye level. And, you, you, and in that little door frame... You can open it in that little in that door frame. There's a little box and you can open that box. And in that box is a scroll. And written in Hebrew on that scroll are these words. Hear, O Israel. The Lord, our God. The Lord is one. That's the foundation of their faith. God knows us. God chose us. God loves us. God cares for us. God will never let us go. And every time an Orthodox Jew goes out of his house, he takes his hand, kisses his hand, touches that box, goes about his day. Every time he comes back in, he kisses his hand, touches the box. Because their whole life is based on an understanding of God being a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. Now, the natural response when we know who God is as Trinity is what comes next. Verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today, that is, the statutes and rules that God gives to Moses, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. They shall be at the center of your life. Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children. This is the family. This is a family that knows the Word of God, loves the Word of God, gathers together as a family so that the children learn from the father and mother, led by the father, the truth of God. You shall teach them diligently to your children. But then look what comes next. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house. You teach the truth of God, and then you just sit down or sit around and have conversations about God's truth. Because you know something. Nothing is more important in your life and in your home than the truth of God. And so you enjoy and delight because God is a great and glorious God, and He's chosen us as His, and He's Come to us to commune with us. You talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You lie down at night. You are discussing together the word of God, the truth of God. When you rise in the morning, you're talking together about the truth of God. When you're walking along the way, when you're sharing life together, when you're in the car together, the center of it is the praise of God and delighting in God and reflecting on the truth of God. The, the Word of God becomes the focal point for life. Verse 8. Uh, ver- yeah, verse 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand 
They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your houses, what I just talked about, and your gates. And it's all rooted in the, mar- the majesty, the, the glory, the wonder of God being a Trinitarian God. That a God this big, this large, this massive, He loves us. And He comes to commune with us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we want to love Him and know Him and serve Him and honor Him. All of that is what's motivating us to make the Word of God the central concern of our life together. Now I want to show you something here because it is important to recognize. Verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. All three of these things, binding them on your hands, frontlets on your eyes, writing them on the doorpost of your Gates among the Jewish people over time, this, these became rituals. It's just something they did. Putting the Shema in the doorframe just became a ritual over time. Wearing the phylacteries that they were called around their wrist just became a ritual. Putting the Torah scroll as they actually wore it as a band around their heads with... Um, the, the scroll contained in a little container that was at the center of their fort. They, they, this, is, this became a ritual. They, they lost the meaning of it because they were able to capture it in some kind of symbolic ritual. Now here's my question. Can that happen to us as Christians? Uh, anything that is special to us, even as sacred as the Word of God, we can begin to treat as just a part of who we are. We bring our Bibles to church. We use them when we're at a church. But how seriously do we take them? Things that are intended to be used by us that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of God become ritualistic activities. That is very dangerous. It's dangerous dangerous for Israel. It's dangerous... For the church, and what happens is we, I think, we begin to lose sight of the majesty and glory of God, the greatness of God. I think that's why God has made it foundational in His Word that to know Him is to begin to know Him by knowing Him as the Trinitarian God. Now, what we read in Deuteronomy that is of such massive importance. Um, I think that's the end of it. Jason, can you, uh, I don't think this, I got any more. So just listen. I, I've got some other slides, but Jason may can help me find them here. Go to John chapter 1, John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, because what we have in Deuteronomy, in the Old Testament, we have in the Gospel of John. Chapter 1 in the prologue to John. There are three statements made in John 1 1 about one being. This one being is encapsulated in the word, word. John 1 1 In beginning was the word, and the word was God. 
and the word and the word was with God and the word was God in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God you have three times in that one verse the verb form was we don't have this verb form in English in the way it's used in the Greek language because in the Greek language it means has always been is now and will always be this is Whatever it's addressing is eternal. In the beginning, there has always been, there is now, there will always be the Word. And the Word has always been, will always be, and is now with God. And the Word has always been, and is now, and will always be God. That's what the text says. In the beginning was the Word. Always been, is, and will always be. This word is eternal. This word is the essence of all that has been and is and will always be. So you and I, because we have the whole Bible, we don't have to say, wonder who that is. The word is Jesus. We know that. We know it from John. We know it from the rest of the New Testament. So we know who the word is, and then we're told that from eternity past into eternity future, the Word was with God. Now John uses a preposition here that we translate with that has a unique meaning. It's not the typical... It's not the typical preposition that is used that would signify with. I saw Johnny Brookins the other night. Johnny was with Cheryl. Okay? That's the way we use with. Two people together doing something. Okay? This is not that preposition. It is a preposition that has the idea of face-to-face. Face-to-face. So that the face of one reflects the face of the other. That's the whole idea here with this preposition. One mirrors the other. Uh, One of the uh, fun things as a grandparent when our grandchildren were little and then watching Bentley now, our little two-year-old, they're here with us for a week and I'm going to have a ball because that little boy is as stubborn as his daddy and I'm going to fuel the fire on that for a week. When, when, when a little child looks at their face in a mirror for the first time and they see their face back, just to see that, just to see their reaction. They either withdraw and run or they get as close as they can and try to get through that glass to hug that other person or to touch that other person. This is the idea here that in the beginning was Jesus and Jesus was with God. He was the mirror image of God. He was the exact impression of God. He was the full reflection of God. How full? Well, John tells us. He was God. He is in his essence God. One God, same essence, Father and Son here at this point. 
That's how it was, verse 2, in the beginning with God. The, the, the idea here is that what we know as the Trinity wasn't created by the church. What we know as the Trinity has been from before the beginning of time. This is who God is and His essence. And we can say about God and the Lord Jesus Christ as mirror images, as one in essence, that all things, verse 3, were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So we know that God made the world and everything in it, and God made the world and everything in it through His Word, and His Word comes to flesh in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Word is a person. We're told that in verse 4. Look at verse 4. All things were made through Him, verse 3, and without Him, this is a person. In verse 4, in Him, this is not a force, This is not an object. This is not a power. This is personal. In him was life, has always been life, will always be life, is life now. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And this light is shining from heaven, from God, through his Son into the world. And the darkness has not overcome it. Now look down at John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. The word glory has to do with the presence and power of God present upon the earth. It is a word that points us to the third person of the Trinity. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Look at verse 16. For from from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. This is the ultimate mystery, the infinite mystery, the only God. Now look at that, verse 18, the only God who is at the Father's side. Who is that? It's Jesus. What did John just call Jesus? The only God. We worship God through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. The power that enables us to worship is the presence in worship of the person of the Holy Spirit. But the object of our worship is God through Jesus. But here's the truth. God and Jesus as one in essence, cause us to be able to say we worship God. But can we say biblically we worship Jesus? Absolutely. Absolutely. We worship God through Jesus. We worship Jesus 
who is Lord, we fall at his feet as the full reflection, revelation, manifestation of who God is. The Trinity is, it's all over the Bible. Let's just look at a few places. Go to Genesis chapter 1. You all know these, you've read these, you've studied these. Let's just remember them and at the end of our time tonight, let's just rejoice in them. These good gifts that God has given us to show us the majesty and marvel of who he is as our God. Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God, Elohim, the majestic, great, sovereign God. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. That's God. What are the next words in Genesis 1-2? And what? So now we got God the Father, God the Spirit, hovering over the face of the waters, and God, God said. In Hebrew, that's the, that word said is the same word that's used in John 1 when it says in the beginning was the word. We know who the word is. So when God spoke, when God uttered a word, that word that ultimately will come to be in the flesh is Jesus. Here's the Trinity. From the start of the Bible, you hadn't gone three verses. And we see the majesty and glory of, of God. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. There was nothing in the world but darkness, nothing. And God said, let there be light. Now, at this point, there is no sun, there is no moon, there are no stars. So what is the light of the world? When God said, let there be light, who is the only one in the universe who can give light to the world? Jesus stood in the temple on, uh, during the, f- the festival of the Jews when they were lighting the menorah and illuminating the courts of the temple, and he stood and said, I am. I am the light of the world. But when he said that, he wasn't saying, I just showed up to tell you that. I'm the light of the world now. No, no, no. He was the light of the world from before the first day of creation. He has always been and will always be the light of the world. Look at chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 26. Then God said... Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, and so forth. Who is the us? God said, let let us. 
You know, there are people who debate this. I, I don't think there's any debate. I'm just, I think this is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This is the Trinity right here. Go to Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. There's so many places we could go to because, uh, you know, one of the arguments of uh, many uh, scholars for a long, long time uh, when they hear conservative evangelicals say the foundational doctrine of God is the doctrine of Trinity, what they argue is the Trinity doesn't, isn't in the Bible. It was created by the church and formulated by church councils in the 3rd and 4th century. They're reading a different Bible, don't you think? It's everywhere. Mark chapter 1, the baptism of Jesus, verses 9 through 11, chapter 1. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and what was descending on him? The Spirit. Jesus baptized, Spirit comes, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. There's no doubt about who's speaking. God the Father is speaking about Jesus the Son who is receiving for His ministry the anointing, the fullness of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. You know this one. Just go back one page in your Bible, Matthew 28. The Great Commission. Jesus came and said to them, verse 18, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations of every ethnic group. That's what it means. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold I am with you. And then go over to 2 Corinthians. This is one of the benedictions that's found in the writings of Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. It's a familiar benediction uh, to people in the to us in the church. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That's Trinitarian. That's the one God in essence and three in expression. This is the fountain, the source of everything that we know about God. It flows from who He is as one God in three persons. You have any questions or additions tonight? You may have something to add, which would be great, or a question, whatever. Don't be afraid to ask it. You can't have a genuine biblical Christianity without the Trinity. So not, it should not surprise us that, uh, that one of the moves in every period of history has been to have the church diminish the identity of God and to make God more like us. And the more we make more, the more we attempt to and succeed at making God more like us, uh, 
the more we lose the sense of who God is, who God really is. And thus we lose awe and reverence before God. I, I uh, think churches can be in great danger of doing that if they're not careful, uh, losing the sense of the, the grandeur of God. I mean, even what I said this morning, I, I don't think God is really concerned about what you wear to worship him as long as you wear something. But I do think we lose something. This is Al. This, I don't have a word from the Lord on this. But I think we lose something when we can dress up to go to a night for dinner and whatever we do, and which is, would you agree, is not nearly as important as coming into the presence of God to worship Him. I think we, we need to think about that and understand... Uh, what it means, and I say that knowing that, uh, knowing that historically, um, one of the reasons, one of the real issues in the Reformation that's seldom addressed, is that in the Roman Catholic Church, if you've ever been to a Roman Catholic Mass, uh, their dress, the dress of the priest, is most elegant. And one of the Reformation issues was to remove that kind of formality from the worship of God. But I wonder sometimes if, if you can go too far in that and lose the sense of the, the awe and reverence of God. Well, go have a great week and delight in this God that loves us so. Father, you uh, have been good to come to us. You've been good and kind to make yourself known to us because you want us to know you. And I pray that our knowledge of you will, even through this series of studies, grow increasingly out of your word. We can only know you that way. Not out of what we think or what we believe or what we've been taught about anything. But what does your word say? Thank you, Lord, for all the expressions of your goodness and kindness to us. You're a great and glorious God before whom we cannot stand, and we would have no reason that we could enter into your presence except you came to us in Jesus. And in Jesus, you gave us access to you. I thank you that tonight, when every one of us go home and we pray to you before we close our eyes and sleep, We don't have to fear that you're going to strike us because through the blood of Jesus, not only can we come into your presence, but you tell us we can come boldly. And we can ask in Jesus' name for whatever it is that is in our hearts that we want to ask for. We can pray boldly. We can can pray plainly. We don't have to use flowery words and pious phrases. We don't, we know that you're holy and righteous. We know that you're just. We know that you're God. But because of Jesus, we can come to you as our Father and we can talk to you in that way. And we delight in that and thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.